The Island of Silver Store, Part One, from the Perils of Certain English Prisoners by Charles Dickens. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kevin Green. Charles Dickens' Two Hundredth Anniversary Collection, Volume Three. The Island of Silver Store, Part One. From the Perils of Certain English Prisoners by Charles Dickens. It was in the year of our Lord one thousand seven hundred and forty four that I, Gil Davis to command his mark, having then the honour to be a private in the Royal Marines, stood a leaning over the bulwarks of the armed sloop Christopher Columbus, in the South American waters off the Mosquito shore. My lady remarks to me, before I go any further, that there is no such Christian name as Gil and that her confident opinion is that the name given to me in the baptism wherein i was made etc was gilbert she is certain to be right but i never heard of it i was a foundling child picked up somewhere or another and i always understood my christian name to be gill it is true that i was called gills when employed at snorridge bottom betwixt chatham and maidstone to frighten the birds but that had nothing to do with the baptism wherein i was made etc and wherein a number of things were promised for me by somebody who let me alone ever afterwards as to performing any of them and who i consider must have been the beadle such name of gills was entirely owing to my cheeks or gills which at that time of my life were of a raspy description my lady stops me again before i go any further by laughing exactly in her old way and waving the feather of her pen at me that action on her part calls to my mind as I look at her hand with the rings on it. Well, I won't. To be sure, it will come in, in its own place. But it's always strange to me noticing the quiet hand, and noticing it, as I have done, you know, so many times, of fondling children and grandchildren asleep, to think that when blood and honour were up, there, I won't, not a present. Scratch it out. She won't scratch it out, and quite honourable, because we have made an understanding that everything is to be taken down, and that nothing that is once taken down shall be scratched out. I have the great misfortune not to be able to read and write, and I am speaking my true and faithful account of those adventures, and my lady is writing it, word for word. I say, there I was, a leaning over the bullocks of the sloop Christopher Columbus in the South American waters off the Mosquito shore, a subject of His Gracious Majesty King George of England and a private in the Royal Marines. In those climates you don't want to do much. I was doing nothing. I was thinking of the shepherd, my father, I wonder, on the hillsides by Snorridge Bottom, with a long staff, and with a rough white coat in all weathers and all year round, who used to let me lie in a corner of his hut by night, and who used to let me go about with him and his sheep by the day when I could get nothing else to do and who used to give me so little of his victuals and so much of his staff that I ran away from him, which was what he wanted all along, I expect, to be knocked about in the world in preference to Snorridge Bottom. I had been knocked about the world for nine and twenty years and all, when I stood looking along those bright blue South American waters. Looking after the shepherd, I may say, watching him in a half-waking dream, with my eyes half shut as he and his flock of sheep and his two dogs seemed to move away from the ship's side, far away over the blue water, to go right down into the sky. "'It's rising out the water steady,' a voice said close to me. 
I had been thinking on so that it like woke me with a start, though it was no stranger voice than the voice of Harry Charker, my own comrade. "'What's raising out the water steady?' I asked my comrade. "'What?' says he. "'The island.' "'Oh, the island,' says I, turning my eyes towards it. "'True, I forgot the island.' "'Forgot the port you're going to. That's odd, ain't it?' "'It is odd,' says I. "'And odd,' he said, slowly considering with himself, "'ain't even, is it, Gil?' He had always a remark just like that to make, and seldom another. As soon as he had brought a thing around to what it was not, he was satisfied. He was one of the best of men, and, in a certain sort of way, one with the least to say for himself. I qualify it, because, besides being able to read and write like a quartermaster, he had always one most excellent idea in his mind. That was duty. Upon my soul, I don't believe, though I admire learning beyond everything, that he could have got a better idea out of all the books in all the world, if he had learnt them every word and had been the cleverest of scholars. My comrade and I had been quartered in Jamaica, and from there we had been drafted off to the British settlement of Belize, lying away west and north of the Mosquito Coast. At Belize there had been a great alarm of one cruel gang of pirates. There was always more pirates than enough in those Caribbean seas, and as they got the better of our English cruisers by running into out-of-the-way creeks and shallows, and taking the land when they were hotly pressed. The governor of Belize had received orders from home to keep a sharp lookout for them along shore. Now there was an armed sloop came once a year from Port Royal, Jamaica, to the island, laden with all manner of necessaries to eat, and to drink, and to wear, and to use in various ways, and it was aboard of that sloop which had touched at Belize that I was a-standing, leaning over the bullocks. The island was occupied by a very small English colony. It had been given the name of Silver Store. The reason of its being so-called was that the English colony owned and worked a silver mine over on the mainland, in Honduras, and used this island as a safe and convenient place to store their silver in, until it was annually fetched away by the sloop. It was brought down from the mine to the coast on the backs of mules, attended by friendly Indians and guarded by white men. From thence it was conveyed over to Silver Store, when the weather was fair, in the canoes of that country. From Silver Store it was carried to Jamaica, by the armed sloop once a year, as I have already mentioned. From Jamaica it went, of course, all over the world. How I came to be aboard the armed sloop is easily told. Four and twenty marines under the command of a lieutenant, that officer's name was Linda Wood, had been told off at Belize, to proceed to Silver Store in aid of boats and seamen stationed there for the chase of the pirates. The island was considered a good post of observation against the pirates, both by land and sea. Neither the pirate ship nor yet her boats had been seen by any of us, but they had been so much heard of that the reinforcement was sent. Of that party I was one. It included a corporal and a sergeant. Charker was corporal and the sergeant's name was Druce. He was the most tyrannical non-commissioned officer in His Majesty's service. The night came on soon after I had the foregoing words with Charker. All the wonderful bright colours went out of the sea and sky in a few minutes, and all the stars in the heavens seemed to shine out together, and to look down at themselves in the sea, over one another's shoulders millions deep. Next morning we cast anchor off the island, 
There was a snug harbour within a little reef. There was a sandy beach. There were cocoa-nut trees, with high straight stems, quite bare, and foliage at the top, like plumes of magnificent green feathers. There were all the objects that are usually seen in those parts, and I am not going to describe them, having something else to tell about. Great rejoicings, to be sure, were made on our arrival. All the flags in the place were hoisted, and all the guns of the place were fired, and all the people in the place came down to look at us. One of those Sambo fellows, they call those native Sambos, when they are half Negro and half Indian, had come off outside the reef to pilot us in, and remained on board after we had let go our anchor. He was called Christian George King, and was fonder of all hands than anybody else was. Now I confess for myself that on that first day, if I had been captain of the Christopher Columbus instead of private in the Royal Marines, I should have kicked Christian George King, who was no more a Christian than he was a King or a George, over the side, without exactly knowing why, except that it was the right thing to do. But I must likewise confess that I was not in a particularly pleasant humour when I stood under arms that morning aboard the Christopher Columbus in the harbour of the island of Silver Store. I had had a hard life, and the life of the English on the island seemed too easy and too gay to please me. Here you are, I thought to myself, good scholars and good livers, able to read what you like, able to write what you like, able to eat and drink what you like, and spend what you like, and do what you like, and much you care for a poor ignorant private in the Royal Marines. Yet it's hard too, I think, that you should have all the halfpence, and I all the kicks, you all the smooth, and I all the rough, you all the oil, and I all the vinegar. It was as envious a thing to think as might be, let alone its being nonsensical, but I thought it. I took it so much amiss that when a very beautiful young English lady came aboard, I grunted to myself, Ah, you have got a lover, I'll be bound. As if there was any new offence to me in that, if she had. She was sister to the captain of our sloop, who had been in a poor way for some time, and who was so ill then that he was obliged to be carried ashore. She was the child of a military officer, who had come out there with her sister, who was married to one of the owners of the silver mine, and who had three children with her. It was easy to see that she was the light and spirit of the island. After I had got a good look at her, I grunted to myself again, in an even worse state of mind than before, I'll be damned if I don't hate him, whoever he is. My officer, Lieutenant Linderwood, was as ill as the captain of the sloop, and was carried ashore too. They were both young men of about my age, who had been delicate in the West India climate. I even took that in bad part. I thought that I was much fitter for the work than they were, and that if all of us had our deserts, I should be both of them rolled into one. It may be imagined what sort of an officer of marines I should have made without the power of reading a written order. <laughs> and as to any knowledge of how to command the sloop, Lord, I should have sunk her in a quarter of an hour. However, such were my reflections, and when we men were ashore and dismissed, I strolled about the place along with Charker, making my observations in a similar spirit. It was a pretty place, in all its arrangements partly South American and partly English, and very agreeable to look at on that account, being like a bit of home that had got chipped off and had floated away to that spot, accommodating itself to circumstances as it drifted along. The huts of the Sambos, to the number of five and twenty perhaps, were down by the beach to the left of the anchorage. On the right was a sort of barrack, with a South American flag and the Union Jack flying from the same staff, 
where the little English colony could all come together if they saw occasion. It was a walled square of building, with a sort of pleasure ground inside, and inside that again a sunken block like a powder magazine, with a little square trench around it, and steps down to the door. Charker and I were looking in at the gate, which was not guarded, and I had said to Charker in reference to the bit like a powder magazine, "'That's where they keep the silver, you see.' And Charker had said to me, after thinking it over, "'And silver ain't gold, is it, Gil?' When the beautiful young English lady I had been so bilious about looked out of a door or window, at all events looked out, from under a bright awning. She no sooner saw us two in uniform than she came out so quickly that she was still putting on her broad Mexican hat of plaited straw when we saluted. "'Would you like to come in?' she said, "'and see the place?' "'It is rather a curious place.' We thanked the young lady, and said we didn't wish to be troublesome, but she said it would be no trouble to an English soldier's daughter to show English soldiers how their countrymen and countrywomen fared so far away from England, and consequently we saluted again and went in. Then, as we stood in the shade, she showed us, being as affable as beautiful, how the different families lived in their separate houses, and how there was a general house for the stores, and a general reading-room, and a general room for music and dancing, and a room for church, and how there were other houses on the rising ground called Signal Hill, where they lived in the hotter weather. "'Your officer has been carried up there,' she said, "'and my brother too, for the better air. At present our few residents are dispersed over both spots, deducting, that is to say, such of our numbers as we are always going to, or coming from, or staying at, the mine. He is among one of those parties, I thought, and I wish somebody would knock his head off. Some of our married ladies live here, she said, during at least half the year, as lonely as widows with their children. Many children here, ma'am? Seventeen. There are thirteen married ladies, and there are eight like me. There were not eight like her. There was not one like her in the world. She meant single. "'Which, with about thirty Englishmen of various degrees,' said the young lady, "'form the little colony now on the island. I don't count the sailors, but they don't belong to us, nor the soldiers.' She gave us a gracious smile when she spoke of the soldiers. "'For the same reason.' "'Nor the Sambos, ma'am,' said I. Uh, "'No.' "'Under your favour, and with your leave, ma'am,' said I. "'Are they trustworthy?' "'Oh, perfectly. We are all very kind to them, and they are very grateful to us.' "'Indeed, ma'am. No. Christian George King? Very much attached to us all. Would die for us.' She was, as in my uneducated way I have observed, very beautiful woman, almost always to be, so composed that her composure gave great weight to what she said, and I believed it. Then she pointed out to us the building like a powder magazine, and explained to us in what manner the silver was bought from the mine, and was brought over from the mainland, and was stored here. The Christopher Columbus would have a rich lading, she said, for there had been a great yield that year, a much richer yield than usual, and there was a chest of jewels besides the silver. When we had looked about us, and were getting sheepish through fearing we were troublesome, she turned us over to a young woman, English-born but West India-bred, who served her as her maid. This young woman was the widow of a non-commissioned officer in the regiment of the line. She had got married and widowed at St. Vincent, with only a few months between the two events. She was a little saucy woman, with a bright pair of eyes, rather a neat little foot and figure, and rather a neat little turned-up nose. The sort of young woman I considered at the time who appeared to invite you to give her a kiss, and who would have slapped your face if you accepted the invitation. 
I couldn't make out her name at first, for when she gave it in answer to my inquiry it sounded like Beltot, which didn't sound right, but when we became better acquainted, which was while Charker and I were drinking sugar-cane sangaree, which she made in the most excellent manner, I found that her Christian name was Isabella, which they shortened into Bell, and that the name of the deceased non-commissioned officer was Tot. Being the kind of neat little woman it was natural to make a toy of, I never saw a woman so like a toy in my life, she had got the plaything name of Bell Tot. In short, she had no other name on the island. Even Mr. Commissioner Pordage, and he was a grave one, formally addressed her as Mrs. Beltot, but I shall come to Mr. Commissioner Pordage presently. The name of the captain of the sloop was Captain Marion, and therefore it was no news to hear from Mrs. Beltot that his sister, the beautiful unmarried young English lady, was Miss Marion. The novelty was that her Christian name was Marion too. Marion, Marion. Many a time have I run off those two names in my thoughts, like a bit of verse. Oh, many and many and many a time. We saw out all the drink that was produced like good men and true, and then took our leaves and went down to the beach. The weather was beautiful, and the wind steady, low and gentle. The island a picture, the sea a picture, the sky a picture. In that country there are two rainy seasons in the year. One sets in at about our English midsummer, the other about a fortnight after our English Michaelmas. It was the beginning of August at that time. The first of these rainy seasons was well over, and everything was in its most beautiful growth, and had its loveliest look upon it. "'They enjoy themselves here,' I says to Charker, turning surly again. "'This is better than private soldiering.' We had come down to the beach, to be friendly with the boat's crew, who were camped and hutted there, and we were approaching towards their quarters over the sand when Christian George King comes up from the landing-place at a wolf's trot, crying, "'Yup! Soldier!' which was that Sambo Pilot's barbarous way of saying, "'Hello, soldier!' I have stated myself to be a man of no learning, and if I entertain prejudices, I hope allowance may be made. I will now confess to one. It may be a right one, or it may be a wrong one, but I never did like natives, except in the form of oysters. So when Christian George King, who was individually unpleasant to me besides, comes a-trotting along the sand, clucking, "'Yup, soldier!' I had a thundering good mind to let fly at him with my right. I certainly should have done it, but that it would have exposed me to reprimand. "'Yup, soldier,' says he. "'Bad job!' "'What do you mean?' says I. "'Yup, soldier,' says he. "'Ship leaky!' "'Ship leaky?' says I. "'Iss!' says he, with a nod that looked as if it was jerked out of him by a most violent hiccup, which is the way with those savages. I cast my eyes at Charker, and we both heard the pumps going aboard the sloop, and saw the signal run up. "'Come on board, hands wanted from the shore.' In no time some of the sloop's liberty men were already running down to the water's edge, and the party of seamen, under orders against the pirates, were putting off to the Columbus in two boats. "'Oh, Christian George King, sir, very sorry,' says that Sambo vagabond then. "'Christian George King cry, English fashion!' His English fashion of crying was to screw his black knuckles into his eyes, howl like a dog, and roll himself on his back in the sand. It was trying not to kick him, but I gave Charker the word, "'Double quick, Harry!' and we got down to the water's edge and got on board the sloop. By some means or other she had sprung such a leak that no pumping would keep her free, and what between the two fears that she would go down in the harbour, and that, even if she did not, all the supplies she had bought for the little colony would be destroyed by the sea-water as it rose in her, there was great confusion. In the midst of it Captain Marion was heard hailing from the beach.' 
He had been carried down in his hammock and looked very bad, but he insisted on being stood there on his feet, and I saw him myself come off in the boat, sitting upright in the stern sheets as if nothing was wrong with him. A quick sort of council was held, and Captain Marion soon resolved that we must all fall to work to get the cargo out, and that when that was done the guns and heavy matters must be got out, and that the sloop must be hauled ashore and careened, and the leak stopped. We were all mustered, the pirate chase party volunteering, and told off into parties, with so many hours of spell and so many hours of relief, and we all went at it with a will. Christian George King was entered one of the party in which I worked, at his own request, and he went at it with as good a will as any of the rest. He went at it with so much hardness to say the truth that he rose in my good opinion almost as fast as the water rose in the ship, which was fast enough, and faster. Mr. Commissioner Portage kept in a red and black Japan box, like a family lump sugar box, some document or other, which some Sambo chief or other had got drunk and spilt some ink over, as well as I could understand the matter, and by that means had given up lawful possession of the island. Through having hold of this box, Mr. Porridge got his title of Commissioner. He was styled Consul, too, and spoke of himself as Government. He was a stiff-jointed, high-nosed old gentleman, without an ounce of fat on him, of a very angry temper, and a very yellow complexion. Mrs. Commissioner Porridge, making allowance for a difference of sex, was much the same. Mr. Kitten, a small, youngish, bald, botanical and mineralogical gentleman, also connected with the mine, but everybody there was that, more or less, was sometimes called by Mr. Commissioner Porridge his vice-commissioner, and sometimes his deputy consul, or sometimes he spoke of Mr. Kitten merely as being under government. The beach was beginning to be a lively scene with the preparations for careening the sloop, and with cargo and spars and rigging and water-casts dotted about it, and with the temporary quarters for the men rising up there out to such sails, nods, and ends as could best set on one side to make them, when Mr. Commissioner Porridge comes down in a high fluster and asks for Captain Marion. The captain, ill as he was, was slung in his hammock betwixt two trees that he might direct, and he raised his head and answered for himself. "'Captain Marion,' cries Mr. Commissioner Porridge, "'this is not official. This is not regular.' "'Sir,' says the captain, it hath been arranged with the clerk and the supercargo that you should be communicated with and requested to render any little assistance that may lie in your power. I am quite certain that hath been duly done. Captain Marion, replied Mr. Commissioner Porridge, there hath been no written correspondence, no documents have passed, no memoranda have been made, no minutes have been made, no entries and counter-entries appear in the official muniments. This is indecent. I call upon you, sir, to desist until all is regular, or government will take this up. Sir, says Captain Marion, chafing a little, as he looked out of his hammock, between the chances of government taking this up, my ship taking herself down, I much prefer to trust myself to the former. You do, sir, cries Mr. Commissioner Porridge. I do, sir, says Captain Marion, lying down again. "'Then, Mr. Kitten,' says the Commissioner, "'send up instantly for my diplomatic coat.' He was dressed in a linen suit at that moment, but Mr. Kitten started off himself and brought down the diplomatic coat, which was a blue cloth one, gold-laced, and with a crown on the button. "'Now, Mr. Kitten,' says Porridge, "'I instruct you, as Vice-Commissioner and Deputy Consul of this place, to demand of Captain Marion, of the sloop Christopher Columbus, 
whether he drives me to the act of putting this coat on. "'Mr. Pordage,' said Captain Murrin, looking out of his hammock again, "'as I can hear what you say, I can answer it without troubling the gentleman. I should be sorry that you should be at the pains of putting on too hot a coat on my account, but otherwise you may put it on hindside, before, or inside out, or with your legs in the sleeves, or your head in the skirts, for any objection that I have to offer to your thoroughly pleasing yourself.' "'Very good, Captain Marion,' says Pordage, in tremendous passion. "'Very good, sir. Be the consequences on your own head. Mr. Kitten, as it has come to this, help me on with it.' When he had given that order he walked off in the coat, and all our names were taken, and I was afterwards told that Mr. Kitten wrote from his dictation more than a bushel of large paper on the subject, which cost more before it was done with than ever could be calculated, and which only got done with, after all, by being lost.' End of part one.